Hebrews chapter 9, and beginning in verse 11. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Let's pray together. Lord, unveil your word to us. We are blind unless you give us sight, or else we don't see clearly unless you show us the truth. Reveal it to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. We need your help in this. We ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. May I ask you a personal question? The cross of Jesus Christ, what is it to you? The claim of Christianity is a unique claim, a remarkable claim, that the death of an itinerant Jewish teacher in an obscure country long ago in the first century is the central event in human history. It's quite a claim when you think about it. The death of an itinerant Jewish teacher in an obscure country in the first century is the central event in all human history with literally cosmic implications. Think about the claim. The most impactful event in human history, really? Yes, indeed, that's the claim. This one verse that we're focusing in on, verse 15, is something of a summary statement to that effect. So we've seen the context, verse 11 through 14, as well as the rest of the chapter, there's the claim that the new covenant is obviously better than the old, and it's outlined in those amazing verses as we've spent some time in them. Verse 11 describes the ministry of Christ and what he has achieved for us. And five aspects of superiority of the new order are brought out through Christ. Verse 11 gives us the first. Christ entered the heavenly sanctuary, not the mere copy on earth. What is the copy is that which is not the original. The original is in heaven, and that's where Christ entered for us. The second aspect of the superiority is found in verse 12. In fact, two are found in verse 12 of these five. Second, through the means of his own blood, his death, not that of animals. Thirdly, by this he secured an eternal redemption, not merely kept things going for a year, covered things over for a year. And then the fourth, verse 14, he offered himself through the eternal spirit, thus transcending all limitations of time. 
We saw last time this speaks of the deity of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Spirit, an attribute of God. He is eternal. He never was created. And also the eternality of what was accomplished. Christ and his work on the cross has ramifications that last to the ages of the ages, eternity. And fifthly, verses 13 and 14, Christ's blood, that's the Messiah's blood, cleanses our conscience from dead works, not just our flesh with a ceremonial cleanliness now. So we come to verse 15, which is, I say, something of a summary statement. I want you to look at it. I want you to be absorbed in it, to fix your eyes on it. As we do, we'll see that there is the proclamation of Christ as the mediator, the mediator, not a media, the uh, mediator. Like us to hold our place in Hebrews, maybe bookmark the place, and we'll be returning at various different points. But I'd like us to go elsewhere to see uh, amazing verses that hopefully will make what we're about to encounter in verse 15 come alive to us. The Bible is alive. A lot of folks say of preachers, if they're doing well, wow, you made the Bible come alive. I think every preacher should say, not guilty, not guilty. The Bible is alive. The Bible makes me come alive. Let's look in the book of Job, chapter 9. This makes me come alive. Here we go. Job, chapter 9. And Job is uh, acknowledged to be by scholars one of, if not the earliest book written of our Bibles. Job lived around the time of Abraham. And he outlined the big problem. When we're coming to answer questions, it's great to be asking the right question. And we often come up with different answers, uh, but we've got to at least start with the right question. And the question that Job had is, how can I have an audience with God and be in right standing with Him? Not, how can I achieve purpose in life? How can I get what I want in life? But he understood the ultimate question was, how do I stand in right standing with a God who's holy when I am not? Look in Job chapter 9 and verse 32, he outlines the problem, for he that is God, this is Job 9, 32, uh, he is not a man as I am. He's not like me, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. This is profound. It really outlines the big problem of the human race. In some versions, in NASB, it reads, no umpire. Other translations read the word mediator. That's the New King James, New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Bible, mediator. And so that's the problem. We don't have a mediator. Who can do what? Look at the end of verse 33. Who may lay his hand on us both. To lay the hand on meant to identify with. To lay the hand meant I can represent them. I can be the lawyer uh, representing the attorney, representing my clients. And we don't have one, a mediator, who can lay his hand on us both, who can fully identify with both parties. I don't have one of those. Now, Christ is the Redeemer, who alone can identify with both parties, God and man. So Job didn't know how God would solve the problem. But if you continue reading in Job, go to chapter 19, Job 19, he couldn't figure it out for God how he would solve the problem, but he was assured that he would. He was assured that God would indeed 
solve the problem. Because this is what we read in Job 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So Job outlined the problem. I don't have a mediator. Uh, there's no one who can fully identify with God as God and man as man, but I know this, my Redeemer lives. How he works it out, I have no idea. That's the revelation of the Bible, that God has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ, this one who is the second person of the Trinity, who was born of a virgin and became man, was made flesh, truly God, truly man. Job didn't understand it, but he believed that his Redeemer was coming and would live, and he lived now and would come. And so we can look back just as Job could look forward. He has come. That's the message. He's come. This one who is truly God, truly man, who can now fully lay his hand on man as man and lay his hand on God as God. And on the cross, he was able to bring both together. What a message. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. I ask you to Keep a place, a bookmark there so you can find it quickly. Job chapter 9, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of the new covenant. He is the mediator of a new covenant. A lot of people are really hostile to the message of Christianity because we proclaim, because Jesus did, he as the mediator. He as the Savior. And if uh, someone said we had a thousand saviors, they would complain we didn't have a thousand and one. What is amazing to us is that we do have a mediator. That's been the message in Hebrews. We have a great high priest who has gone into the holy places for us. There is a mediator and he's the mediator. He's the only authorized mediator who's authorized by God. We have this high priest. He's king and he's priest. He's king forever, and he's priest in the order of Melchizedek. Keep your place in Hebrews. Go back to Isaiah chapter 53. Hope you enjoy reading your Bible. We'll be in it a lot today. But what's new? Isaiah chapter 53. We have in these remarkable words a prophecy, because Isaiah was written around 700 years before Christ, and we have such a supernatural book called the Bible that we can read about the Christ 700 years before Christ comes and read about the cross 700 years before it happens. That's an amazing thing you and I are reading. And in this uh, description we have a prophecy about the suffering servant who will come. We read these familiar words in verse 4. Surely, this is Isaiah 53, 4, Surely he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. We thought he was under God's curse. He must have done something wrong. He was smitten by God. Well, one aspect was true. He was smitten by God, but not for any sin of his, because he had no sin. He died as a substitute, and that's what's brought out in the next verse. But he was pierced for our transgressions, not for his. He had none. He had no sin. He was pierced as the substitute for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the 
chastisement or punishment that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our sins, the sins of God's people were transferred to Christ on the cross and he suffered in our place as our substitute. Can you say amen? amen? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've done our own thing. You might say, well, I've not committed murder or adultery or these heinous sins. Well, you might have done it in your heart. But more than that, we have all turned to our own way. We are rebellious by nature. We've done our own thing. We've all sung the song of Frank Sinatra, I did it my way. That's the truth. That's the honest truth. But look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? That's a prophecy about the death of this suffering Messiah. Stricken for who? For the transgression of my people, God's people. Continue to read verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one. Ah, he was righteous all along. He was suffering in the place of sinners, had no sin of his own. He is described as the righteous one. My servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Question, who does he make righteous? The answer would be those whose iniquities are borne by him. He bears their iniquities and he also accounts them righteous. Therefore, verse 12, I'll divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. There it is again, the death of the Messiah and was numbered with the transgressors. He wasn't a transgressor, but he was numbered with them. Yet he bore the sin of who? Many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sin of God's people and intercedes for them. We see in John 17, no need to turn there simply for the sake of time, but enjoy reading of Jesus as high priest. He says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me. He intercedes for them and just mere hours later dies for them. <clears throat> so, he's the authorized mediator. Let's continue reading in Hebrews 9, 15. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Ladies and gentlemen, there's an inheritance. Are you interested? It's an eternal inheritance. Who gets this? All who are in Christ. The Bible says we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. What God gives to Jesus is made available to all the heirs. What is that inheritance? It's rest, it's a perfection, it's an inheritance. And those who are called may receive that promised eternal inheritance. Now, we use the word may to say it might happen. It may rain tomorrow. The likelihood is not that great, but it may, it may. But that's not what is in view here. It's not they may receive, no, it's so that they may receive. That's how the uh, word is, is being related to us. So that this was done so they may receive the promised eternal inheritance. 
This is the possession of all who are called. We're going to come back to that. Not all receive this promise eternal inheritance. That would be uh, really a doctrine called universalism. You may not have heard that name, but you might have certainly heard or even believed that as a concept. That is, that everybody will be saved. Everybody. There's no one going to hell. Everyone's going to heaven. Um, in funeral services, it's very popular to say, this one's in a better place. The pain's over. How do you know that? They may be screaming in hell. It's uh, the job of the preacher to just point out, if this person was a believer, they're enjoying bliss. If not, they would want you, if they loved you, to know the truth of the gospel. That's how I've done many sermons at funerals. Uh, I have no idea. I don't actually say I have no idea. Usually, usually I just say uh, don't know or whatever to people in conver conversation. But I know that should they be in hell right now, they loving their family would not want them to end up there. And so on that basis, preach the gospel. Amen. So, universalism, everyone's saved. You never find that in a Bible. In fact, you've got so many... Bible verses to cut out, uh, if you believe that, that your Bible is going to be a very holy book. <laughs> I was once in a service uh, next to uh, a lady who was 19. She was way ahead of me because I was 17. And uh, she was an older Christian, two years, and I was a brand new Christian. And uh, I looked at her Bible and I uh, was looking at mine, and she was right next to me. Just happened to be seated with each other, didn't know her before this. And um, I was looking at my Bible and looked at hers, and she didn't have certain verses. Like I was looking at verse 15 or 12 or 1 or whatever, and there was no verse 1 in her Bible. And then we went to another part of the Bible, and again, there's verses missing. Like verse 13 isn't in her Bible. And after the service, I asked her, said, I, I notice you don't have some verses in your Bible. And she says, oh, I cut out the verses I don't believe. Now... That's the first and only time I've ever come across that. Um, but there are a lot of people who cut the verses out mentally rather than physically. She had the uh, bravado to cut them out. Don't give her a Bible for Christmas. There won't be much left. So it is. But we are to be under the Bible and allow God to speak. And God has given us His Word. And the Bible says all Scripture is God breathed, not just the parts you agree with. Amen. Amen. And our job is to find out what he says and come under it. And verse 15 is a powerful verse, and so we're going to take our time looking at it. So who receives this inheritance? Are you interested? Here's what the Bible says. Those who are called. Do you see that in the text? Those who are called. This goes to the heart of who we are as Christians. The church... In Greek, the word church is uh, ekklesia, the original language, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Not that it's an inspired language, but the words come to us in that koine, common Greek of the New Testament. And the word for church in Greek is ekklesia. It's from two words sandwiched together, ek. In fact, we have uh, right in front of us the word exit. It's uh, found in various places where there are doors. And what does that tell us? It tells us the way out. You know how to get out when you find the exit. That is the way out. And the word ek, which is the root form of that word, means out. It simply means that, out. 
And the word kaleo means to call. Put the two together, you have ek, kaleo, ek, lazier, and it means the called out ones. That's what the church is. So there's this massive humanity, and the church is the people that God has called out from the world into this thing he's building called the church. And God does it all by his power. It's as if God looks you full in the face and calls your name and says, Out, I say. And there's so much power in that call that you don't just say, I'm not really interested. No, the call has power to change your heart so that you now want what you're called to. You want it, and eight minutes before you didn't. That was true of me. I had no interest in Christ. Saw my dad reading the, his Bible at aged when I was eight, and he walked out of the room. I was reading it too as he uh, vacated the room, and I thought, there's nothing here I want. Have you noticed something's changed in my heart? I'm not the reason for the change. God is. God took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh that now beats to know Christ, and I attribute the change to God, not my great humility or my wits. I worked out who Jesus is. No, God did what I could not do, take out the stony heart. There's no one on planet Earth who's asking for that transplant of the heart. They're not signing up. Oh yeah, March the 8th, count me in. I want the heart transplant. No, we love our sin. We want everything but Christ. And God, if you now love Christ, God has done behind the scenes what you couldn't do for yourself. He's given you a heart that now wants Him. And it will beat for Him for eternity. Amen. It's not a temporary thing. People looked at me and said, oh, Johnny's in this religious phase. Give him three months and he'll be different. Well, 40 plus years going, still going, still going, still beating. Why? Because he that began the good work in me, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. If I would started the thing, it's all going to be over in three months. We have interest in different things, different diets, right? <laughs> Hello. Yeah, I I'm on this diet. It's the real thing. Oh, let's check back in three months, see if you're still on it. We have different interests and we fade and die in our interest. But if you're a Christian, you will always love Christ because he's the source of your love for him. Amen. He's put faith on the inside of you. So this goes to the real heart of who we are as Christians. You, the church, are the called out ones. Now, theologians distinguish between two types of call. Stick with me here. It's uh, not that complicated. I believe you'll get it. There's the gospel call, which is what the preacher does, what the, uh, the, the, the man who, or the woman who writes a Christian book does, and he calls people to faith. That's the gospel call. The call of the gospel goes out, and it goes out to the ear, or it goes out to the eye, because we read the text. But that by itself does not change the heart. Have you noticed that? Not everybody you and I share the gospel with comes to faith in Christ. It's wonderful when they do, but no one's got this 100% record. You're just so good at sharing your faith that everyone who hears you preach the gospel comes to faith. There are evangelists who even boast that they can do that. And when you check, they're preaching a man-centered gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. For someone to come to Christ takes 
a miracle. It is much more powerful than anyone getting out of a wheelchair or even have physical sight restored when they're blind. This is the taking out of the heart that does not want Christ and now does. It's a supernatural event. It's called being born again and it's an act of God. And unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What has to happen first? They come into the kingdom of God and then are born again? No, they have to be born again before they enter. That's Jesus' teaching in John chapter 3. And all this is done by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. And he blows where he wishes, like wind. He does what he wants, when he wants, sovereignly. So is everyone who's born of the Holy Spirit. You read John chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. So, if you're in the kingdom and you're a real Christian, you have been altered. God has done something for you supernatural. And what that was, was this second type of calling that we read about in our, in our Bibles. And theologians make the distinction between the gospel call, which can only go as far as the ear or the eye, and the inward call, which is by the Holy Spirit, that goes directly to the heart. And under the sound of the gospel, you're reading a book, you're hearing the message, you're hearing the gospel, the Holy Spirit superintends that gospel call and brings an inward call and says out I say out I say Mary out I say John out I say out I say and you come out of darkness into the light and now want what you didn't want eight seconds before it's a miracle of all miracles and God has changed your heart and you now want him when you didn't want him before and now you will want him forever has that happened to you has that happened what an act of God it is more dramatic. It's on the inside of you, but it will change your life forever in this world and the next. You're called of Jesus Christ. The gospel call comes to the ear, the inward call to the heart. Let's go to Romans chapter 8. Keep your place in Hebrews. Romans chapter 8. Now, when we get in this passage, I'm actually teaching on it midweek right now. It's hard for me to go in and get out. You understand, so pray for me. It's going into a store real quick. I'm just going to go in, and then I'm coming out, all right? Uh-huh. Pray for me. Look at verse 28. Romans 8, 28, so familiar to us as Christians. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, what? Called. Notice that word. We're focusing on the word called here according to its purpose. Now, I have outlined the fact that there are two types of call. Let's ask the question, is this the gospel call that's in view or is it the second one, the inward call? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined, those whom he foreloved, set his love on in eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, which is salvation in its ultimate uh, reality. Saved people are not just into heaven, sitting on the back row, still looking very haggard. No, they are brought into heaven and are immediately glorified and as much as humanity can, finite man, look like Jesus Christ. They have all of his characteristics. 
It's going to be fun to be in heaven with some people. You, you think about a church camp and you think, I'm not sure I want to have two days with that person, right? I'm not sure I could last two days. But you're going to have heaven with them. What happens if they're in the mansion next door? The good news is they're going to have an M.A. after their name. Marvelously altered. And it'll be okay. And you'll be thrilled that they're there. Here it's a different story. To dwell above with those we love, oh, won't that be glory? To dwell below with those we know, that's another story. <laughs> but one day, true Christians will be like Christ, conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now here's verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. All right. If we were to march a thousand or even a hundred, because that would probably be uh, too much to ask, a hundred theologians into the auditorium today, the sanctuary today, and say, all right, what is the implication of this text? Is it all those he foreknew he predestined, and all those he predestined he called, and all those who he called he justified, and all those he justified he glorified? Or could it be some? Some of those he foreknew he predestined, and some of those, you see the point, could it be that some of those he justified or glorified? I would say a hundred out of a hundred of those theologians, even though they might disagree on a whole number of topics, would all say the implication of the text is not some, but all, because of the context. The context is Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Then verse 35 and 39, and there's no separation. And if there was separation, you would have the implication of some, right? Because here's some good news. Some of those who are right now in standing with God will make it. Oh, isn't that encouraging? No, I'm thinking I'm ahead of the list that those are going to fall off. But no one falls through the cracks. All would agree, all theologians would say the implication, though it's not stated by the text, is implied by the text. All those he predestined, he called. Look at this. And those whom he called, he also justified. Who? All of them. All the called he justified. And again, we've already made the point that if it's the gospel call, we could never say all that receive that call are justified, right? Not everybody who gets the gospel, embraces the gospel, and is justified. How are we justified? By believing in Jesus. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, this text says, those whom he called, he also justified. This is such a powerful call that everybody who gets it ends up justified, and all those who are justified end up glorified. No one falls through the cracks. You're foreknown, you're predestined, you're called, you're justified, and you're glorified. Which word am I emphasizing? Called. And that's what's in view. If you're a Christian, and you understand very little about your Christian faith, you're a new Christian, you might only say, well... I know I'm justified before God because I believed in Jesus. He's declared me. That's what justification is. He declares me just in his sight based on Jesus Christ, his work alone, and through faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I'm justified. If you know that, you've got the fourth link in the chain down. You know I'm justified. I don't know all of this other stuff. 
but I know I'm justified. Do you know you can go forward and backwards in this chain and know it will be true of you? And it has been true of you. I'm justified because he called me. And I'm called because he predestined me. And I'm predestined because he foreloved, he foreknew me. And I'm justified now and I will be glorified. I'm going to make it. Because it's not me that got me in, it's he that got me in and he'll accomplish his will. All those who are justified are glorified. All right, back to this word called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Powerful call. God forms each of these links in the chain. These are things that God does. That's where the emphasis is. There's no reference to what man does. It's God. Look at that in the verse. Verse 29. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's the emphasis? God, God, God. This is what God does. And that's why our security is not in our ability to keep on, but his ability to hold on to us. What a joy. No one falls through the cracks. And this call always results in justification. All the called are justified. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He calls the elect. And here we have the Trinity in operation. The Father elects the people, the Son dies for those people, and the Holy Spirit, what does He do? He applies the, redemp the redemption of the Son to those same people. The same people are in view all the way. I'm looking at the clock. We're here till Tuesday, right? Okay, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Someone turned to their, their neighbor and said, there's hope, he looked at the clock. Here we go. Acts chapter 2. Here we have the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost, and it results in 3,000 people uh, being saved, then baptized, and joining the local church. So we'll talk about that. Verse 37, this was their response. Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you. This is verse 38. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise... That's of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Many people stop reading at that point, but don't. Continue on. There's an explanation in the last portion of the verse as to who it is that's in view. It's true for you. It's true for your children. It's true for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God, what? Calls to himself. So again, We've got this powerful call in, in place because this call resi results in the promise coming to us. It's for you, your children, and uh, for all who are far off. They're in a Jewish context here. This is uh, a reference to Gentiles. This is not just true of Jews. All Gentiles who are far off, all of them are going to receive the Holy Spirit and the promise made. Well, everyone who's called, uh, yeah, uh, everyone whom our, the Lord our God calls to himself. So amongst Jews, all the called 
will receive the Holy Spirit. And amongst Gentiles, all who are called will receive the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? It's there in your Bible. As many as the Lord will call to himself. So, amongst Jews and amongst Gentiles, amongst the whole world, God says, I have a people and at a certain point in their life, I'll call them to myself. They may be six years old. They may be 97 years old. The thief on the cross, you remember him? Didn't look like he was called. Didn't look like. If he had a mother who was uh, viewing the events, he was about to die. This was not a good day. This is a criminal. He's getting what he deserved. He even admitted that. But the inward call of the Holy Spirit, invisible to us, took place. And while he's breathing out just condemnation of the one next to him, mocking him, suddenly, bam, whammo, he now wants this Christ and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Where did that come from? Now we know where it came from. The Holy Spirit arrested him. And while he was on the cross next to Christ, took out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, and he's now saying things he never said he thought he'd ever say. And he wants Christ, and he wants to come under his lordship. And he recognized that the one next to him, though it doesn't look like it, is king. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. What was that? God opened up his eyes. There wasn't a fanfare of the hallelujah chorus. There was nothing there that said, this one next to you, can you see he's the king of all kings? He's the Lord of all lords. No, the Holy Spirit opened up his eyes and he couldn't see it before, but now he realized, I'm next to the one who rules as the king of the universe. What was that? He's done the same thing for you if you've come to faith in Christ. And it doesn't matter if someone's on their last day on planet Earth. God is perfectly capable of calling them to himself. That's our hope. That's our hope with our children. That's our hope with our relatives. That's the, true, the, the hope with our friends. You might have shared the gospel 38 times with someone, but God knows the 39th time is when God says, they're my elect, they're coming home today. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me. Not might, have a good chance. We leave it up to their free will. Our wills are not free. We're slaves of sin. What we need is not free will, but wills made free. If the Son will set you free, you'll be free indeed. Amen. Back to Hebrews 9. I would say he's slightly animated today. Yes, yes. Wonder what it is. The reason is, I know I've been called. I didn't get myself in. He's the mediator. A mediator, you know this, brings two estranged parties together. That's the function of a mediator. A carpenter fixes things and makes things of wood. A salesman sells things. A mediator brings two estranged parties together. Here's the message. He's never failed in his mediation. He's achieved everything possible as the mediator. He's done it. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are, what is it? Called, 
may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Not might, may in that sense, but so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. Oh, that redeems them. Who's the them? The them are the called, right? Same message. So, what did the cross do? What was the intention of God in the cross? To try to save everybody, but fail many, many times? Or was it to actually save a people? To actually redeem a people? This verse, like many others, tells us the intention of God was to redeem a certain people called the called. And he did it. Since a death has occurred, that redeems them. Jesus is not the great trier. He's really hoping. He's achieved something and by his death secured the eternal redemption of the called. And he's given them an eternal inheritance. And once he was able to do that, he sat down. And now he intercedes for the same people on the basis of what he achieved at the cross. Amen. That's the God of the Bible. He gets his will done. It wasn't a shock when you came to Christ. It might have been a shock to your mother-in-law. It might have been a shock to you. It's a shock to me that I love Christ now. I had no love for him. I have to admit that was no love in my heart. As Keith Green sang the song, you put this love in my heart. You're the one who did it. This death, according to verse 12, accomplished eternal redemption. Do you see that in verse 12? Thus securing an eternal redemption. Verse 15. And this death provides an eternal inheritance. Since a death, we read, verse 15, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So, we have this death of, of the mediator in the place of sinners. Which sinners? Well, it's the consistency of Scripture again. We saw it in Isaiah 53. We see it in Matthew 1, 21. Do you remember the words given to Joseph? You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will, not try to, hope to, he will save his people from their sins. Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Translation, Christ loved the called out ones and gave himself for her. The shepherd chooses the sheep. Not the sheep, the shepherd. And the shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Did he lay down his life for the goats? No, for the sheep. You don't have sheep going around and say, hey, what do you think of our shepherd? Shepherd Tom. Uh, well, I like him. As, I'm open to other offers, though. Yeah, Shepherd Billy over there, he, he really looks like uh, the guy I want to be with. Do you think we could get a transfer from our sheep pen into... We laugh. No goat ever becomes a sheep. They may be acting like goats up until the last day on earth, like that man at the cross. 
but it was a sheep all along. And all the sheep are going to come home. Finish it for me, wagging their tails behind them. <laughs> First Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1. I don't think it's a danger that I'm going to be running around the building with my hands in the air, but pray for me. I have Pentecostal roots. <laughs> First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18. Do you remember the question I started with? What do you think about the cross? Verse 18. For the word of the cross, the message of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Do you see in the cross the power of God? We're talking about a cross that literally saves people for an eternity and gives them an inheritance? If you see that, God has been very good to you. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Rhetorical questions, we know the answer. Nowhere in the kingdom of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Question, yes, he has. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? For Jews demand signs. They want to see the miracles. Greeks seek wisdom. I'll tell us something we've never heard before. But we preach Christ crucified. He knew what they wanted. Jews wanted a miracle service. Greeks wants Greek people wanted uh, philosophizing, but he went into Corinth and he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to preach Christ crucified, knowing all along it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Amongst all the Jews and Greeks, there's this called group. And they see Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For consider your calling. What kind of calling? This effectual calling that you're now in the kingdom of God. It's not talking about your ministry. Oh, I have a calling. No, this is the calling of being saved. Consider the call that saved you, that brought you into the kingdom of God. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standard, nor many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose. How many times are we going to read this word in this passage? God chose chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that, what's the purpose? No human being might boast in the presence of God. Wow. So it wasn't because you were, you may have been one of, it didn't say not any, it said but not many. And in the early church, it was mainly poor people that were coming to Christ. And Paul is writing and says, yeah, God chose it that way. God chose them. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If you got in by your wits, you've got something to boast about. Your powers of observance and being able to work out, I know who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the Son of the, of the living God. Oh, do you remember when Peter proclaimed him as that? He said these words, Jesus... 
flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, reveal this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. You're blessed, Peter. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you've been blessed. What do you see the cross as? Foolishness or stumbling block or the power and wisdom of God? This call is not merely a call of hope. It's a call of colossal power. It's a Lazarus come out from the grave kind of call. Do you remember that? Jesus in John's Gospel called Lazarus out of death into life. Same thing has happened to you spiritually that happened to him physically. Lazarus, come forth! Notice what Jesus didn't do. He didn't go into the tomb and says, look, I've got this proposition for you. I'm going to raise you from the dead. Uh, but of course, I can't do anything unless you give me consent. I want you to sign on the line that should I raise you or after I raise you, you're not going to sue me for violating my right to stay dead. Didn't need cooperation. It was mercy. Mercy alone. And Lazarus wasn't upset because he was now back alive. He was full of gratitude. The called out ones will believe the message. Why? Because they're called. The inward call of the Holy Spirit always brings justification. It brings his elect people all the way to justification. Eternally redeemed to an eternal inheritance. He, look at Hebrews 9, 15. He redeemed the called. See it in the text. Back to Romans 8. Okay. Lord, help us. Romans 8. We've seen verse 30. Verse 31. We're going to read it. What then shall we say to these things? What we don't say is, I don't like this. What we say is, wow, if God is for us, who can be against us? Wow. He foreknew, predestined, called, justified, and glorified me. The last part hasn't taken place, but it's so true that it will happen. It's described as in the past tense, because in eternity, this is all just working out in time now, what's been established in eternity. What shall we say to these things? The right response is, if God is for us, who's the us? The elect. Who can be against us? The elect. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. Who's the us? The elect. Gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us? Who's that? The elect. All things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? You see, he's continuing on the same argument. He's not now moving from one subject to think, oh, let me get back to election. It's all election. Who bring any charge against God's elect? Same group. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who's the us, the elect. Who shall separate us, who's the us, the elect, from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written, for your sake, we, that's the elect, are being killed all the day long, we, that's the elect, are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we, that's the elect, are more than conquerors through him who loved us, who's the us, the elect. I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us, who's the us, the elect, from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. On to verse 16, for the sake of time of, of chapter 9. Romans 9, excuse me, yeah, Romans 9, verse 16. So then, summing up, it, that's election in context, depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Carry on. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, the elect, whom he has called. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. There it is. This is the God of the Bible. He has a people in eternity that he has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. He has chosen them to be in Christ. And he's working out in time what has been established in eternity. And in the wonderful gospel, this God, the second person of the Trinity, becomes a man born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died an atoning death on the cross, is now raised from the dead, and is at the place of all authority in this universe, so that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Get this, you might have missed everything we've said. Come to Christ, and should you do, you walk through the door that says, whoever will may come. You look at the door, you think, I can come? Yes, you can come. The call goes to everyone. Whosoever will may come. You walk through the door. You look back at the door you've now walked through and it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We're not speaking of a wide bridge of salvation that doesn't reach the other side. It's a narrow bridge, but ladies and gentlemen, it goes all the way. And God on the other side of the river came our way on that bridge of the cross and picks us up in his arms and carries his, us over to the other side all by grace alone. And that's why you repent. And that's why you believe. Christ's cross secured the eternal redemption and inheritance of the called. And that's why all the glory for salvation goes to our triune God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the finished work of the mediator who accomplished all in the Father's heart. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He died in the place of the sinner. I pray, Lord, that you will call many to yourself, even through this message, Lord, that we might be those and counted amongst those who one day will stand around the throne of the Lamb giving glory, not saying, oh, wasn't my choice good, but worthy is the Lamb that was slain, for he has redeemed a people for God by his blood. We get it all there. Wash our brains here that we get it here. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.